This is Health Yeah, your weekly update on what's going on in the health, wellness, and medical world with Monica Robbins. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to Health Yeah, your prescription for medical health and wellness information. I'm Monica Robbins. When we think of health and well-being, we often think of our physical selves, but there are other areas of your life that need to be healthy too. And one of them is your legal health, because let's face it, the stress alone of worrying about legal issues is not very healthy. So many of us don't find out what we need until we need it. And then the stress just simply piles up. So to help me unpack what you need to know is legal expert and consumer advocate, Dan Karen. So thank you so much for doing this, Dan. Thank you. It's such a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. All right. So this morning, I just downloaded a new operating system for my iPhone <laughs> and iPad. And like everything that agree button pops up, and I don't, I don't read all the print. I don't have that kind of time. So I just hit agree. Lots of us do this. Should we be reading it? And what, what am I at risk for? Boy, should you be reading it kind of begs the question, what's in the, the, there that you need to be looking for? And what's in there that you need to look for is always at the end. And it's what's called a forced arbitration clause. What's a forced arbitration clause? Forced arbitration says that if you have a beef with, your credit card company or the cable company or your cell phone company for, you know, having paid more than you should have or bad service or whatever, you can't go to court in the conventional traditional sense. Rather, you have to go to what's called arbitration, which is a private tribunal between you and them and somebody that they hire to oversee over, you know, your, your oversee your problem. And when you do that, it can't be as a class action, meaning you might have a claim for five, 10, 20, $50. Might not be enough. Certainly wouldn't be enough for a lawyer to get involved in, but as a class action, a million people with $25 claims, that's a big deal, high stakes. So what do the companies do? In this forced arbitration clause, they include what's called the class action ban, which is to say, when you're forced to arbitration, it's gotta be individually, nobody else. So now you've got your $25 claim, you're on your own, no lawyer, an arbitrator who will likely rule against you. Otherwise, he or she doesn't get hired again by the company. And it's essentially a license to steal. That's baked into all of these consumer contracts. Maybe, maybe not all, but most, if not all. You click, click, click through. You miss them. You don't see them. And you're often bound by them, which is the scariest and saddest part. So how is that legal on their part? It used to be a case that you could challenge them on what's called unconscionability which means really unfair on two levels. One, substantively, it's a really unfair thing. You can't make somebody go to arbitration. They have a Seventh Amendment right to a jury trial. I mean, heck, there are only 27 amendments in the Constitution, and this is like the seventh one. It's in the top 10, so it's a big darn deal. You can't strip that away without letting people know. Two, in terms of letting people know, it was buried on the back, small, hidden, whatever. It's procedurally unconscionable. The process by which you weren't allowed to see it isn't fair either. You demonstrate those in varying doses, and you could probably get out of it back in the day. Why is that no longer the case? There was a Supreme Court case called Concepcion versus AT&T. It involved the Concepcions who had a problem with AT&T mobility involving their cell phone, as so many of us tend to have. And they wanted to sue AT&T in a class action. AT&T had this forced arbitration clause baked into hidden in its terms and conditions. And they defended at t that is in the basis that, hey, listen, you can't sue us. It says what it says. 
And we figured on the plaintiff's victim's consumer side, it's going to go the way it's always gone. If it's unconscionable, it gets tossed. Well, Justice Scalia, for a, a 5-4 majority, if I remember, don't hold me to it, the Supreme Court said, no, that's not the case anymore. The Federal Arbitration Act of federal law favors arbitration. It encourages arbitration, where arbitration is on the table and it's known in a contract, whatever you want to call it, by the parties, it's enforceable. And you could argue, but folks didn't know it. Well, you could have, should have, slice it however you'd like. What came out the other end was that, you know what, these terms are largely enforceable going forward. And that's why so many consumers are stuck on the short end of these consumer contracts because of forced arbitration. So how do I fight it? Because a lot of times you don't have a choice. You either say you agree to something or you just don't get it. Right. Um, those are called adhesion contracts, which means if you don't like it too bad, go somewhere else. And if you don't like what Verizon tells you, go to T-Mobile. Well, it's the same language. If you don't like that, go to AT&T. You know what? Same language. So you're kind of uh, in a pinch. What are you going to do? And you need a cell phone. Adhesion contract. So what I've found to be effective isn't really shouting you know, more and more loudly into the wind, hey, this shouldn't be fair, shouldn't be legal. Rather, it's kind of you know, beating these guys at their own game. And there are a couple of ways that have emerged as you know, somewhat effective. The first one is pretty straightforward. I often tell people, hey, listen, you don't like what your vendor did, you don't necessarily have to sue them in a class action, take them to small claims court, go down to the county courthouse, the clerks are receptive and nice and cooperative and helpful. The filing fee is nominal. Put down a complaint for, you know, however much you believe you're owed. And often the cell phone company, the credit card company, the cable company is going to want to resolve the case with you rather than sending the file out to a high-priced lawyer, you know, their national counsel, then finding local counsel. Next thing you know, it's $50,000 just to get rid of a $15 complaint. They'll probably pay you. That's option one. Option two under really beating them at their own game is what happened recently at Amazon. Now, Amazon, your terms and conditions have a forced arbitration, what used to have a forced arbitration clause. So that when you bought, you know, a, you know, putting aside who the seller is and versus who the, you know, the processing company is, if you had a claim against Amazon for something, you couldn't sue them. You had to go to arbitration. And in the context of um, um, what was this in the context of? Oh, I remember. This is an interesting case. It involved Amazon Echo, you know, home um, entertainment devices or whatever they're called. And in most states, if you record a conversation, it's not illegal because they're called one party states, which means so long as one party to a conversation knows it's being recorded, it's not illegal. Now, that's going to be the recording party, of course often, but it's not only California, on the other hand, is a two-party state, which means both sides need to know the recording is going on. So let's take that law and apply it to this whole Amazon Echo situation. When you're sitting at home and you want to play some music and you say, uh, Alexa, play the Beatles and, you know, come together comes on and, you know, plays some music and whatever you think that's fine. The allegation was that Amazon was recording your voice for future use, whether it's marketing or whatever. And think about it. Folks didn't realize they were being recorded. It wasn't a two-party issue. It was a one-party issue. Amazon knew it, but never told you, when you say something to Alexa, you're being recorded. So that was arguably a violation of California privacy law. So 
Somebody took it to court. Amazon said, you know what? Forced arbitration, you're kicked out. And they essentially were. So what the plaintiffs, the victims there decided to do was to load up on lots and lots and lots of these people. And these weren't that hard. These people weren't that difficult to find. I mean, somebody with an Amazon Alexa, you know, they're everywhere. So before they knew it, or before Amazon knew it, I remember there were like 75,000 folks had gotten together and wanted to sue in what's called a mass arbitration or a swarm arbitration. And you might think, well, big deal, you know, it's just 75,000 cases. It's bigger than if it were only one, but why is Amazon all that concerned? Because on the whole, it's still less than a class action, which would be like 75 million. Well, the rub is that in the terms of admissions, Amazon said to make it more palatable to courts, they said, when we make it go to arbitration, we're gonna pay the costs of arbitration, which can be about 3,500 bucks per pop. And that's just to get started. So take $3,500, times 75,000, and now you're into the tens of millions of dollars. And, our, and, and Amazon's finally like, you know what, this, we cannot bear the you know, brunt of this. This is ridiculous. So they pulled the arbitration class to just sue us, just sue a class action from now on. So that is a perfect example of beating um, you know, the vendors at their own game. I can't tell you how many times I get that little postcard in the mm-hmm. mail with all the really, really, really legal, tiny print that oh, I yeah. don't bother. But I probably should because it's telling me I'm in a class action when I, I don't even know what I did or what it was about. Why are those things so important? Or maybe somebody gets an email. Why do we need to pay attention to those? Well, first of all, emails are going to be more um, common because the rules of court were amended December 31st, 2019 to allow email notice of class action settlements. I mean, the, the class action rules in the federal rules of civil procedure, the rules that govern the conduct of courts here in the, in the United States, they're like decades old. So they didn't speak to email. But everybody knows that email is better often than direct mail. Because, you know, direct mail is expensive. It's junk. People throw it away. Email, they don't always look at, but at least it's on the table as, an, as a good option. So now email notice is going to be out there in, in, um, more frequently than, than it already was. So your question was, what are these things? Emailed or regular mail? What the heck are these things? When a class action case settles, the rules require the parties to serve notice on the class members, the people out there, you know, around the country, around the state who are affected by this settlement. And if you don't like it, you can do a couple of things. You can opt out, say, forget this. I'm doing my own thing. I'm hiring a lawyer or I'm just not doing anything. I don't like what y'all are doing and leave me out. You can also object to it and say, I really don't like it. I'm going to object to this and try to stir things up because you're doing it the wrong way and this is not okay. You're not being fair or right to people. Or you say nothing and you're considered as in the as being in the class subject to getting your damages award. So when you get that little, that little postcard, first of all, is it tough to read? Oh my God, yeah. It's like crippling. It's horrible to read. There's a whole plain language movement out there make it readable for people and you still can't read it. And I've rewritten notices that defense lawyers have put out there because often they don't want people to understand it because they don't want them to claim their money. But I'm like, that's kind of why we're doing this. It's got to be really readable and real and honest and in, in, in a way that connects with people because people don't want to read to begin with. You got to make it accessible. And it's a challenge for sure. There's a whole system behind that in terms of advertising and how to make it you know, catchy and grabby and all these sorts of things are built in. It really taps into the whole marketing realm. And often 
well, not often, if you get the notice, well, I should say it this way. You get a notice, often you're entitled to money. Not always, but often, which is why you're getting it. One of two things tends to happen. Either you don't have to say anything and something just shows up, a check, a refund, maybe even money put into your PayPal account or Venmo to you. There are a lot of new techniques we're playing with to make it more efficient and effective to give people their money because that's who we're doing it for. Or you have to fill out a claim form, which is to say, you know, you bought X numbers of whatever, of whatever, you know, X, X units of whatever product. Um, we need to understand how much you're owed for, uh, for the settling parties to write you the proper check, to which you might say, what are you asking me for? I mean, defendant, you sold it to me, don't you know? Well, you know, sometimes it doesn't stack up the right way. It doesn't add up the right way. Documents still missing. Maybe we take your number, compare it against their number just to make extra sure. But often there's a claims process involved. Non-claim settlements are better. I'm working on one right now where there's no claims process. We know who's in the class. They're getting money, period. End of story. I think that's great because that means there's no remainder sitting around, no un unclaimed funds. All the money goes to the victims. So that is all, uh, that all derives from that little card that you just mentioned that you get in the mail or email. So you have been part of several high profile class action lawsuits. Which one are you most proud of because it had the biggest impact on, on people? It was a price fixing case involving LCD flat panel displays, like the display that the screen that all of us are watching this podcast on and that you and I are talking to you. This is a case against the big LCD flat panel manufacturers who are off, you know, a lot of household names, Hitachi, Samsung, LG Philips, um, um, Toshiba, and then some more discreet, lesser known names. And they were all from Japan, Korea, and um, Taiwan. And mm, maybe for about 10, 12 years, they were all cooking up this worldwide felony price fixing scheme whereby they agreed with each other to overcharge everybody for their uh, screens that went into TVs, laptops, and monitors. And everybody has them. And the money was really big by the time, of course, it added up on a global level. What ended up, what we ended up learning was that they were, like I said, fixing prices, not just in the US, but in Europe and Canada and uh, Australia and New Zealand and in Asia and all the enforcement authorities got them and they were fined big time. But that didn't put money back into the pockets of people who overpaid for LCD containing devices. You pay too much for your TV. You pay too much for your monitor. You pay too much for your laptop. I teach law school and I look out and every kid's got um, you know, an Apple or a Dell laptop or an HP laptop. And when the case is happening, I'm thinking, y'all pay too much for these things. And money does not grow on trees for most people. You deserve that money back. So we spent a number of years litigating that case all around the world. It ended up settling for about $2 billion on behalf of consumers in most states nationwide. And I was thrilled to be able to give and you know, participate in giving money back to people who deserved it and taking it away from the bad guys who didn't. That was a pretty cool case. Spirit Airlines. Yes. You know, that yeah. was just a cluster of magnitude proportions. <laughs> so, um, but, you know, I, I mean, a lot of people were stranded. A lot of people were out of money. And it's not just Spirit Airlines. This could happen to any airline and the way, the way things are going. So what was the most important lesson consumers should have gotten out of that? How do they get their money back? How do they fight for themselves? Mm -hmm. 
what is it when something like that happens again, because you and I both know it will happen again. What do people need to remember? Well, the most interesting observation I'd say is what wasn't expressed in the media. I heard a lot of talk and saw a lot of stories and read a lot of press about whose fault it was and what a mess it was for, for passengers on the ground. But left out of the discussion was what passengers can do on account of what happened. Because if you think about it, people not only lost money by paying you know, for replacement flights, rental cars, um, missing work, missing personal events, whatever. There's a lot of money that was lost on account of this. Still hasn't been discussed, actually. What can people do to get back what they're owed because of what Spirit did? And to my mind, it all derives from the contract you have with Spirit. What were they to do for you and what didn't they do? Where did they fall short based on what their promises were? And what governs air travel between passengers and the airlines is what's, what's called the contract of carriage. And I'm sure most people are like, what the heck is a contract of carriage? If you Google Spirit Airlines contract of carriage, you will find it. And it talks all about what they owe you and what they don't think they owe you for your giving them business. And one of the things they think they don't owe you is anything for dropping the ball like they did. And if you read that and walk away thinking, you know what? I guess I don't have a claim because Spirit says I don't. That's not okay. That's no different than them saying I can put my hand in your pocket and pull out a hundred bucks and keep it just because they say they can do it to make it legal. And that's essentially what their contract with carriage says. Could there be a a class action uh, flowing from the spirit debacle? There probably could be. I'm not involved in it. I mean, I got other stuff I'm working on. I don't know whether one's been filed, but you know, it's a discussion that's suitable to have. Sure. You uh, call yourself a lovable lawyer, uh, a term that a lot of people wouldn't attribute to lawyers. What does that mean? Well, I want to be accessible and I want to be honest and I want to be relatable because I talk to lawyers too, obviously. I see them in court. I read their emails. I read their, their, their legal papers that they file. You want to throw up. You don't want, I mean, I read stuff from folks on my own side. I start not liking because it's just the, the demeanor, the language, the, the terminology is such a turnoff. And it's so un- inaccessible to people who need the help who lawyers are supposed to be helping. So I figured, you know, you take that observation going in and you couple it with the following, which is that in my 30 years of practice, I have concluded that there's this societal bias against uh, access to justice where people who need it the most tend to get it the least which means folks don't know they have legal issues or if they know they have issues, don't know how to resolve them. If they know how to resolve them, don't have anybody available to implement that resolution because they don't want lawyers, can't talk to lawyers, lawyers won't listen to them, they can't afford a lawyer, all these sorts of, of challenges, such as, for instance, forced arbitration. In your example, this happened to you, you're out of pocket some money, you figured, I guess that's how it is, I'll just take it because you know the defendant says so. Not okay. So what's your website? It's www.yourlovablelawyer.com, yourlovablelawyer.com. And it's steeped in videos and content that's fun and accessible that I hope folks will watch and learn from. Dan Karen, thank you so much for your insight. I have a feeling you and I are going to be talking uh, a lot more because you have some really interesting insight (laughs) into uh, ideas that affect all of us, if you will. I love nothing more. Thank you, Monica. All right. Have a great day, everyone. Thank Thank you. you. 
Please find me on Twitter and Instagram at Monica Robbins. Like and follow my Facebook page, Monica Robbins WKYC. Subscribe and find video podcasts on my YouTube channel, Monica Robbins. Until next time, have a healthy week. Thanks for listening to Health Yeah! with Monica Robbins from WKYC Studios. Subscribe now so you never miss an update. And find more on everything you heard here on WKYC.com and on the WKYC app.